You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. That's right, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinion on these industry stories. If you want to go deeper, full show notes are available on justinkana.com slash podcast. If you come across a story you'd like me to talk about, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find it. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. All right, I think that's enough intro. What is up, folks? My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 80 of the Emulsion Podcast, and I am in no mood to waste time today. The big stories we're going to chat today include the statistic that Americans are eating out less and what that means for restaurants, a little recap on my trip to Feast Portland and what I learned there, Chef's Table Seasons 5 and 6, the chefs have been announced for that, healthy kitchen dynamics, and a question from you folks about food that is art versus food that is delicious all coming up. But for now, we're of course going to start with some headlines. A user named at Dev Tesla on Twitter posted a video that is that's gone a bit viral. As of writing this, it has 5.6 million views. And you got to kind of watch it to understand exactly what it is. But it involves a Pepsi bottle, a Coke can, a skewer, and ground meat. So you definitely got to check that out. Um, put that on your list to watch after this episode. It is of course linked up in the show notes. Joe Rogan, a guy whose podcast I've been listening to quite a bit lately, had uh, Morgan Fallon on his show. That is the name of that gentleman. He was the DP, which uh, stands for, I think, director and producer, um, which is weird, though, because on his job title, it says DP, comma, director, comma, producer which is kind of strange, but he worked on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, and if you're a Bourdain fanatic or even just want to get a little more closure on his passing, it is a really, really great interview from someone who has traveled a lot with Bourdain, and I think that speaks volumes to hear people that don't cook share their thoughts on why they loved food so much, and it's encouraging for us to continue to do what we do, and there's just a lot of cool behind-the-scenes stuff, and I'm pretty sure Joe Rogan starts crying in one of the parts, but it's It's just a really, really fascinating uh, interview, and I highly, highly recommend you listen to it, especially if you're still kind of beat up about the Bourdain thing. I noticed uh, his latest post on Instagram, like his last post on Instagram, there's still people that are commenting that are saying, like, I miss you so much. And to hear stories like that that are coming in such a positive light, it was was a really nice to hear. The Michelin Guide released its stars for 2019 for Washington, D.C. here in the U.S. The Inn at Little Washington is the first restaurant in the, the city to be awarded its third Michelin star after being open for 40 years. Additionally, two restaurants have been awarding have been awarded one star for the first time, those being Bresca as well as Siren by RW. Of course, congratulations to everyone that's getting acknowledged for their work this year. No huge surprises for me this year. If anything, I was expecting pineapple and pearls to get elevated from two stars to three stars. Their food looks incredible from what I've seen. I haven't personally been to D.C. since uh, I went once in culinary school very briefly. Uh, I took the bus from Chinatown in New York to D.C., but my high school cross-country team used to go there once every summer, and I certainly didn't have any interest or the finances to eat at any of these very well-known uh, high-end places, but I would love to go to Mini Bar in particular, uh, which also has held its two Michelin star ranking this year. Uh, Overall, I'm of course happy to see that they've completed their portfolio, essentially having one three star in the city. Uh, It's kind of weird that they launched the guide having no three star in the city. 
Um, but I'm a little confused, right? Like what changed, uh, at, in at little Washington chef Patrick O'Connell has been there for a long time. And it's really hard for me to see where that push came from to elevate them from two to three stars. Um, but having been in that game, attempting to get the attention of Michelin, at least in my last kitchen that I was working in, I know there are a lot of like detail oriented changes that happen when you're pushing for that third star, or that, that first star, even from having none. Um, and they aren't really worth putting in a press release, um, or on the, about page of your website. So a lot of those details that you're doing to get the attention of Michelin sometimes go unnoticed. Um, and Michelin, they're concerned about their brand, right? They like the part of this award could just be based on the restaurant being consistent year after year. I know Michelin is, is pretty heavy in, in that regard. A AI researcher named Janelle Shane has trained a neural network on 2,500 heirloom Apple names, and it can now confidently spit new ones back at you. Yes, computers are getting smarter and smarter, so we've decided to have them name fruit for us. Some of these names include Red Tom of Bonzi, Kentick the Steeler, Warrior Golden Pippin of Balandfust which is very bizarre. Renaissance jokes aside, I think these are some pretty objective results from technology um, characterizing us as humans. The article saying, quote, while many of the names the AI generates seems like total nonsense, they tend to follow certain patterns that the neural net can easily uncover. The fake names, odd similarity to real Apple names reveals just how tied we are to our naming conventions, end quote. I will, of course, stick with my Granny Smith apples. Thank you very much. What's your favorite apple varietal? You too, Instagram. Let me know down low in the comments or, of course, tweet at me. I have a lot of questions for you folks in this episode. Quickie update on a story I've been following closely with. Mari Katsumura, the Chicago chef taking over the former Grace space, has a name for her project. It is called Yugen, meaning a deep awareness of the universe. It will be open in October. It originally started as a Japanese-slash-French hybrid, but now she's confident it will be full on Japanese food. Some concerns I've seen on Twitter after this big release about the name and some of the other details that are going along with this project include the fact that it's in a space that has so much history, aka the, the Grace space, and that Mike Olzowski's 23-year-old daughter will serve as the GM of the project. So stay tuned as that develops. Mike Easton, chef of Il Corvo here in Seattle, Seattle, a restaurant that no matter what day of the week, no matter the weather, no matter what time of day you go, there's always a line. Uh, it is a James Beard award-winning pasta joint, and they're going to open another restaurant in West Seattle, which is about maybe like a 20, 25-minute drive from where the original Il Corvo is. It will be in this historic log cabin, which will kind of fill in the gaps that Il Corvo isn't open. So for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Il Corvo is open for lunch only. I, I'm almost positive it's just Monday through Friday. And so this new spot will serve brunch and dinner. Uh, it, it will be called Il Nido, meaning the nest. And I'm very, very excited to shoot a This Place Called episode in there because I'm always down to get down on some Il Corvo for lunch. So that can only be a pre prequel for what the uh, food at Il Nido will be. In Can We Please Close This Book News, Gabriel Hamilton and her partner Ashley Merriman will scrap their plan to take over the Spotted Pig after not being able to arrive at a deal with Ken Friedman. Hamilton saying in an email to their staff, quote, we felt we needed to be the actual owners and the final and, and the final decision makers of the day-to-day -day decisions of the restaurant, and we couldn't make our case persuasively enough for Ken to agree to that, end quote. I feel so bad that I spent so many hours of your life and my life uh, dedicated to cataloging this transition, and then they just decide to scrap it. So, uh, of course, it's a way bigger waste of time to the people that actually work there, but I just think it's funny that we covered it so much, and now there's news that, uh, of course, that they just decide to scrap it. So as someone who covers these stories uh, to kind of serve as reminders of the past to better perform in the future, I really hope that we can put this whole fiasco behind us and not cover it again. But as with most scandals, I'm sure the news will continue. So that's enough headlines, today's beverage, and with the way that I have the uh, camera and lighting set up right now, this is going to be intensely um, product placement, but it's fine. This is um, Dr. Brew Dr. Kombucha um, out of, I want to say, see, Portland, Portland, Seattle, maybe. I'm not entirely sure, but this is their mint lemonade. I had a very, very fatty, not so healthy dinner. Um, so this is going to give me some gut health. At least I hope so. It's refreshing nonetheless. 
I also really want to thank Chris Anderson and Jacob Regan, both new supporters on Patreon, even more importantly on the mentor tier. It's just crazy how many people are signing up for that. There's actually only one spot left on the mentor tier uh, because I do coaching calls with those folks and I limit it to just be 10 people so that I don't get overwhelmed with that. I am playing around with the idea of creating like a tier between the $9 tier and the $30 and the $50 tier so that the people can sign up just to get the gearbox, but I want to get that um, logistically rolling first. And then once that happens, then there can be a tier where, you know, you can support my content for most months out of the year, but then four times a year, you get a pretty awesome gearbox that I send your way, uh, depending on the brands that I'm working with at the moment. Um, but if you're interested in supporting this show, keeping it as ad-free as possible, I you can do so for one just $1 a month if you want to have a little fun with it. I have my buy me a beer tier at just $9. Uh, it just happens monthly. You can uh, digitally send me some alcohol money that I promise to not spend on alcohol. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a monthly live stream as well for the folks that are on the buy me a beer tier where I literally uh, do buy one beer and uh, just hang out with you guys and answer questions. So if that's something that would get you excited uh, for the buy me a beer tier, I'm always interested in learning how I can um, bring more value than um, what the price is uh, because as it scales, the, then the, the the financial part takes care of itself, and then it starts to really support the show. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to see a monthly live stream hangout with the Buy Me a Beer tier folks, please let me know, and I'm happy to make that happen. First up today on the main stories, Grub Street's Chris Crowley published an article called, quote, Americans are eating out less. Should restaurant owners be worried? Question mark end quotes. And it's so clickbaity. I love it. It's actually a ripoff of a piece from the original article on OregonLive.com, where they talk a lot about McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and Blue Apron being these kind of like disruptors or bigger scalable players in the restaurant game. But let's start with the facts here on this very clickbaity title. The NPD group did a study where they show that apparently the average American's restaurants visits have declined from 215 times a year to just 186 times a year. And they also do say that 82% of meals in America are made at home. Um, so overall, this is my question for you folks that I'd love to hear from you on. If you've been in this industry for a while, and I, when I say a while, I would say like between eight and eight plus years, eight, like 10, 10 years more. That's like more than how long I've been in it. Have you noticed a change? Do you think that people went out to eat more, I would say 10 years ago than they do now? Um, and every, to everyone that's less than five years in the industry, does it discourage you at all to hear statistics like this, that, you know, the, the places that you're going to work for are having a decline in people that are interested in going to them? I'd be very, very interested to start that conversation in the comments. Um, are you staying away from the traditional restaurant? If you're like just starting off in this industry, is that kind of like eking you out? Are you trying to look for alternatives? I'm really, really eager to, to hear your thoughts while I share mine. So I've covered similar stories to this before. Food is a very, very enticing business. Everybody eats, right? It's not like designer prescription sunglasses or sparkly pots for your plants in your house, right? Like with the exception, of course, of the people that need to get nutrients supplied to their body through other methods, the focus group for people that eat food is relatively large, right? Now, I look at it from the perspective of lifestyle. It's something that I noticed an insane amount when I moved here to Seattle. There's a very, very large percentage of the people that live here that need to be at work at 8 or 9 a.m., right? And traffic sucks. So how do you get that first meal of the day? It's probably going to be made at home or it's probably going to be something quick and on the go. It's not going to be at a restaurant, right? And then you have to have one meal. Well, then you get to work and you have to be at your desk until like 6 p.m. So you're most likely going to have lunch at your desk. And then you're going to sit in traffic on your way home, right? And then you're going you're gonna to have one more meal before bed. And where does the restaurant fit in in that day is my question, right? If, if at all. And I contrast that with when I was in Europe in January and I tell the story of us getting off the plane and heading straight to lunch with a friend of ours. And we said yes to getting a glass of wine for lunch because we were on vacation. We we're like, screw it. And I looked around and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people had glasses of wine on their table. And it was awesome to see, but we were in Paris, right? Uh, like people taking an hour or 90 minutes out of their day to spend lunch with the people that they care about or want to get to know. It's just a different way to think about uh, food and how it plays itself into your life. And I'm not saying that like Paris is a super romantic uh, city. There are definitely people that eat 
lunch at their desk in Paris. But take it back to Seattle, um, one of the highest rents in the country, right? Couple that with the fact that most restaurants don't get real business until like 4 p.m. All the time before that is either like cheaper lunch menu or happy hour stuff where you're discounting the food that you're you're making. So essentially your space is sitting empty for 16 hours a day and you have to drive revenue somehow. So that's where the the, the huge price uh, on, on restaurant food comes from. And take into account the service the services that the article mentions, whether it's uh, you can get pre-chopped vegetables in the store to make dinner faster, or boxes like Blue Apron that essentially take the shopping element out of the equation completely, it's a no-brainer that these statistics exist, at least in my mind. But my question is, where does the industry go from here? And I want to hopefully answer that by transitioning into my next topic, and it's from a really nice couple out of Austin that I met at Feast Portland this past weekend. And they are partners in a company called So. So it's like General So's Chicken, T-S-O. It is an app-based Chinese delivery business. And their tagline is, quote, made fresh, free delivery, no tipping, tax included, end quote. Sounds pretty great. And they're open from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. So it works like this. You download the app. You look. You say, I want to get some General So's chicken. It's 10 bucks. It includes rice. A few minutes later, it gets brought straight to your door. And compare that with other services like Postmates or Uber Eats. And that $10 order of chicken comes out to like 16 bucks, right? We've all been there. After like delivery, tip, uh, convenience fee, or whatever they charge on top of that. They nickel and dime you. But of course, the restaurant sees like pennies on the dollar of that order as well because it's like uh, the consumer gets charged and then the restaurant gets charged for using the service of Uber Eats or Postmates. And as this couple was explaining to me in Portland, as I was sitting at the table with them, I couldn't help but think about how this is where things have to go eventually, right? Like they were telling me about how they built their kitchen to satisfy, like they custom built this kitchen, not in the way that most restaurants are, right? Because most restaurants set it up where they want to serve the dining room and then Uber Eats comes and they're like, hey, can we integrate delivery into your restaurant? This was made the opposite way where it was 100% uh, going mobile first, right? And so that this, this means they don't have to pay for a dining room. They don't have to pay for service staff. They don't have to pay for a bar area for people to sit in. They don't have to pay for uh, storage for all of their plates and 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 glasses and all that stuff. Um, it was just a fascinating look at food service that I would only think is possible in 2018. They were talking about how they like they focused on the food and the operations and they completely outsourced all the software stuff to overseas and they had someone else build the app for them. And it was just, it made me think about those fast fine dining places that we covered a few weeks ago where they have like 40 seat, 40 seat dining rooms, but they serve like 800 meals a day. The numbers actually start to make sense to have a profitable business at that point. And I I would implore you to consider these alternative structures and ways to serve people food. If you're a chef uh, that's navigating those waters right now, like, do I do a restaurant? Do I do a brunch spot? Do I do a wine bar? Um, A standalone restaurant that only does dinner can still work. I'm not trying to describe anybody from living out their dreams, but there are so many alternatives now that weren't available when I first started in the industry, and I think that should be on your radar, um, and that's, uh, of course, why I wanted to cover it, especially because I got such a cool story on the back-end uh, process with these guys at So that I don't think you get to see on their site. Uh, so again, that is called So's, uh, it's called So Delivery is the name of that app. I feel like we've been talking about Netflix a lot on the show lately. They just announced the stars of Chef's Table Season 5 and 6. So here's a quickie rundown of those names. i got to pull it up here. Uh, These names include Christina Martinez, South Philly Barbacoa. Uh, I can't pronounce that name. Musa Dagdivarin. I hope I'm saying that right. Bosong Visavasa. Visa... It's the lady from Thailand. I'm so sorry. Uh, Albert Adria. Uh, and then, of course, uh, season six, we have uh, Masha Mabeli um, out of, she is in Savannah, Georgia. That's right. Uh, Dario Caccini, Caccini, Asma Khan, and, of course, Sean Brock. Very, very exciting to see those names pop up. Uh, I've, I'm, of course, very, very excited, always, every single season, to watch the cinematic goodness that is Chef's Table. But one of the biggest stories that came off of this press release was the big controversy from the 
pastry season amongst the diversity of the show's subjects. So for those of you that don't remember, people weren't really that happy that Christina Tosi was the only woman on the pastry season. And an Eater writer interviewed the show's director, David Gelb, saying, quote, back in the spring, when I asked Gelb what actions he was hoping to take to ensure that Chef's Table would provide a richer, diverse viewing experience, he said his team would be more cognizant. Quote, it will make for a better show, and it will be a better representation of what the food world should be, end quote. David Gelb confirmed that he will be looking closer not just at diversity in front of the camera, but behind it too. When asked what level, he said they would be looking at the staffing as a whole. So apparently it's top of mind. And I see this from two sides personally, right? Netflix probably has an incredible amount of data on its customers and they know who watches these shows. And they probably give David Gelb and the Chef's Table team an ideal customer or at least a market segmentation. And then they say, look, this is who watches Chef's Table. Make a show for these people. And regardless of what us industry folks know about how diverse food is, it's not about that for them, right? Like they are better off making way more than 50% of the market watch a season or even just one episode and then make that enticing for the targeted viewer and then adding these really amazing stories that lie outside of the box because, hey, if we got you to watch one episode, you're probably just going to keep watching. So I feel like that's where part of it comes from. And of course, the other part of me would love to see more stories that uh, that cover a broader spectrum rather than the Michelin quote-unquote rise and fall of the troubled artist that so many of these first episodes of the show portrayed. And the fact of the matter is, with these projects, David Gelb only has so much say in it, I think, right? Like, Netflix is paying for the project, and with that comes a trade-off. You don't get 100% creative freedom when someone else is footing the bill, and that's a double-edged sword, uh, right? Like, if you don't like it, you should just leave Netflix and publish it yourself. But then again, good luck getting that many views on your show, right? It's always a give and take, and I, I don't think that gets stated enough uh, when David Gelb is making these decisions when he's kind of stuck between the audience pushing him one way and Netflix possibly pushing him another way, of course. But uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think Chef's Table is doing all right for itself or are you salty at their past lineups? And what do you think of the new season when they have uh, definitely made more of an effort to be more diverse? Next up, a story I saw in a tweet, but I wanted to just briefly touch on it. There's an author out of the UK named Ross McGuinness, and they published a new book. Well, it's an old book. It's actually from 2017, and it's called We Want Plates. And the subtitle is, quote, The Crusade Against Food on Slates, Chips in Mugs, and Drinks in Jam Jars, end quote. Amazon saying, the, this is from the page on Amazon where the book is is uh, is available for sale. It says, quote, We Want Plates is a global crusade against serving food on bits of wood and roof slates, chips and mugs and drinks in jam jars. A social media phenomenon, the online movement has gathered thousands of pictures of absurd, unexpected, and downright stomach-churning occasions when restaurants have shunned the ordinary plate. This book is a hilarious collection of the best pictures from We Want Plates, plus previously unpublished material including soup in a stiletto, bread in a flat cap, beef wellington on barbed wire, prawns and an iron and a phone box sandwich. End quote. But yeah, I was just saying, I think maybe I'm late to the party on this book, but I think it's a really funny project to embark on, especially the fact that there are so many examples of this happening, the We Want Plates uh, movement, and there's enough material to just publish a 112-page book on it. And I think it's an example of one of those ebb and flow scenarios, right? Like you look around and everyone's presenting food on plates, and then you put a dish on a brick, and people are going to be like, whoa, that's different. And whether it's good or bad, you're going to get attention from it. And then people are going to start using all weird stuff to present their plates on because they see it and they see that you're getting attention from it. So they're going to copy you. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're going to look around and everyone's plating on weird stuff and you're going to plate on plates. And then it's just, it, 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 it happens on and off just like fashion until we die. That's what life is. Uh, but for the record, I'm, I, I am no way endorsing serving your prawns on barbed wire or whatever that restaurant did. That is definitely dangerous. But I think there's a difference between having fun with a presentation and making it entertaining or interesting for the guest, and then also using things like shock and awe tactics for attention. But I do think, uh, do, like, do I think that it deserves a crusade and a hardcover book? I don't necessarily think so, but in the words of Philip DeFranco, don't be stupid, stupid. Heading back on that diversity topic that we covered earlier about Chef's Table, the World's 50 Best Committee has also come out with their own statement. Helen, Helen, Helene, Petrini, the P. 
Petrini, director of the awards, and a women woman herself, and I'm not saying that uh, out of spite, that's literally what the, the article starts off with. She says, quote, while there is inevitably a wide variety of views on exactly how we push for greater gender balance and wider diversity in the restaurant world, we are all essentially shooting for the same goal. We do not have all the answers, but are working together to make a significant difference. I therefore call for a collaborative and supportive approach to these complex issues, end quote. This was very, this press release and this article or this blog post or whatever you want to call it was very, very PR. It was very cut and dry. There wasn't um, a lot of action. It was just a lot of kind of like what everybody wants to hear or what they think we want to hear. Uh, but they also announced that they have an informal advisory board of, quote, the world's leading female chefs, end quote, to talk through the future of the world's 50 best awards. Later, they interviewed Claire Smith, the winner of the Best Female Chef Award this past year, where she said, quote, we still have a real lack of women recognized at the top of the industry, and we have to do something about that. We're not going to change it by ignoring it. Sometimes you have to go over the top by recognizing women and giving them platforms so we can really start to recorrect the balance, end quote. And I'm going to leave the full post down below if you want to read through it and get the full picture, especially if you're someone that uh, takes World's 50 Best very seriously or if you're someone that's super against World's 50 Best. Uh, but for those of you that, that have been listening to the show for a while, you're going to know where I'm going to go with this story. To me, it's the wrong way to go about it. I personally don't think that equality comes from pouring water from one glass to the other, depending on who's feeling neglected, right? Uh, because then the scales are constantly out of balance, right? And I'd be curious to hear about how many men were able to attend that all-female chef meeting, right? And how that can potentially be seen as a negative. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not, I'm also not alone in this. Two episodes ago, I shared my friend Bonjwing's post on meritocracy and how he very elegantly said it better than I ever could. But it's not, a, it, it's not about recognizing women at the top of the industry. It, like it's 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 not like there's a nameless faceless chef that no one talks about doing amazing food out of a basement in Brooklyn and no one wants to give them an award because they're a woman right it's just a fact it's it's just a fact of the matter that there are more males leading high-end kitchens and this academy is interested in awarding high-end kitchens right and and once that comes out as a fact then we can kind of like move on from there um and i've said it before on the show there's an nba and a wnba in basketball and that doesn't exist in food everybody is on the same field and take that for as good or, or bad but that's just how it is right like do i agree that there's no perfect solution i do agree that there's no per perfect solution to move forward on, but I personally don't feel like these temporary band-aids and focused attention and spotlight searching is going to result in long-term equality uh, for the future, right? But those are my thoughts. I'm always keen to hear yours. Uh, last time I shared my thoughts on this, it was definitely controversial, but I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, so let me know. Uh, next up, we've covered this panel before. Kat Kinsman does this special publication for food and wine called Communal Table, and this month's edition focused on Gabriel Rucker, the chef and owner of Le Pigeon, uh, Little Bird Bistro, and Canard in Portland. The piece is called, quote, if you want a healthy kitchen, lead from the top down, end quote. And it chronicled Gabriel's story of living a very stereotypical chef lifestyle. Long hours, partying, having a problem with alcohol, and how he used uh, going to AA meetings to overcome that. And it has fundamentally changed the way that the restaurant works. He says, quote, I don't go out of my way to hire sober chefs. I hire good cooks. But the culture has changed, and it seems we attract a very different type of person. Conversations in the kitchen no longer circulate around eating the most foie and drinking the most whiskey. They now support one another in living a healthy lifestyle outside of the kitchen. We're now a safe space for chefs wanting to make healthier choices, end quote. And it ties a bow on the story with the zero-proof dinner that happened last week at Feast Portland's uh, Food Festival, which was a non-alcoholic dinner that Sean Brock and Andrew Zimmern and, of course, Gabriel Rucker, the guy that we're talking about now, and a couple other awesome chefs were a part of. And I had the insane pleasure of being there for Sean with Sean Brock, uh, not for the dinner, of course, but to sit in on his fireside chat and hear about him talk about the way that the dinner was going. And he was super proud to share his own story about uh, getting sober and then saying during prep at the dinner, everyone was sharing their own stories in the best way, talking about how they're recovering. And I'm all about that, right? It's the kind of positive change that is supportive and it's acknowledging that it is a problem or it was a problem, not like marginalizing it, but also not demonizing it either, being able to say, yep, I know how that feels or, you know, listen, I know what you're dealing with and this is how you can get help, which I'm a big fan of. That is way more productive uh, than some of the other 
uh, methods we've seen. Speaking of Sean Brock, I wanted to share an update from the Fireside Chat itself. Uh, if there's a link to it, I will link to it. I am absolutely going to include it in the show notes if I find any information on it. But he might have just debuted or announced it at Feast Portland. But he has a project he's launching called, quote, Before It's Too Late, end quote, which he expressed could be his life's work, where he goes out essentially into the boonies of the South and he talks to these old grandmothers or these guys who have knowledge of these old food recipes and preparations, but they haven't written them down anywhere. They're literally all stored in someone's noggin or in their memories. And he's on a mission to document all of this food knowledge and culture essentially and do that basically before these people kick the bucket. And it's very similar to the journey that Magnus Nielsen went on with his Nordic cookbook. But this one is going to, of course, tackle the food of the American South. It is a fascinating project. I'm super happy to bring you that news first, if that is indeed what I'm doing. Maybe there's tons of articles out about it now, but that's why you listen to my podcast, right? To hopefully get the news first. Every year in the 15-ish days leading up to Christmas, the restaurant at Meadowood in California hosts their 12 Days of Christmas event. The list of the chefs was just released, and the team... And Chris Costow partners with Bonjoring Lee to curate a list of chefs doing really exciting things. And they host them on the property and do an insanely awesome dinner and put all the profits towards the St. Helena Preschool for All. This year's chefs include Jose Enrique from Puerto Rico, David Pint from Burnt Ends in Singapore, Jessica Largi, whose restaurant Simone is opening in LA in 2018, James Lowe from Lyles in London, Camila Seedler from Bolivia, uh, Byungjin Kim from Korea, uh, Wojciech Modest Amaro from Portland, from Poland, a heavy hitter knight of Trevor Moran and Justin Cogley, Michael Tusk from Quince, Anna Rose from Hisa Franco, and Sota Atsumi, whose restaurant Maison is opening, I'm pretty sure, in Paris in 2019. What a list. I rely on these dinners and this curated selection of chefs to kind of see the food from the chefs that aren't always super clear on my radar. Um, it's these guys who have their ear to the ground way more than I do because they're in these Michelin star restaurants day in and day out. Uh, and also, I, I, I love following along with these events too because Bonjoing photographs these and documents them so well. I really get to see a lot of amazing food uh, in a very, very short amount of time because almost all of them do multi-course tasting menus. They're usually between like seven and 15 course tasting menus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's 12, essentially 11 chefs with all these dishes do the math. I get to see a lot of really interesting food that spans the spectrum. So, um, I always look forward to these. I legit had a ticket the year that I moved to Norway. I had a ticket to one of the nights. I don't remember what one it was. I want to say it was Matt Orlando, but I had to get a refund because I left the country, so I wasn't going to be there. Uh, I'm, of course, still dying to go. Tickets flex somewhere between $300 and $750 a person this year, depending on if you sit in the dining room or at the kitchen counter. So it's a pretty fantastically lavish event. So next up, the sweet science on Instagram, the guy who gave me the brownie correction the other day, wanted me to talk about chefs that make food for the camera as opposed to food that tastes good. Specifically, this guy on Instagram, he's at YBLINC. You might follow him. He's got 88.2 thousand followers, uh, and he seems to be all about splattering food all over or putting food not on the plate. I don't really understand it, but it's a really interesting question and I'm not going to shit talk this guy because I've never had his food, but here's what I know. I had huge respect for Thomas Keller's answer to this question on is food art or is food a craft? And he said that cooking is a craft, not an art. And up until I read this book, called Cooking a Quintessential Art, it gave me a completely different perspective, and it changed my mind. So I highly recommend you read it. It's called Cooking a Quintessential Art. If you're anyone who's interested in the fine dining side of food, I don't remember if it's that long of a read, but it doesn't read like a traditional book. It's like a bunch of people that are interested in food, whether it's food writers or chefs, sitting down and having a conversation, and it's a transcription of a lot of those conversations. And it's it, it, it talks about food compared to other art forms, and it gave me this really powerful takeaway, and I'm going to share it with you now. So when you take a carrot out of the ground, right, and you put it on a cutting board, the next thing that you do to that carrot is manipulating it, right? And I'm going to pause for a dramatic effect there. So if you peel it, then you've manipulated that carrot, right? Like you've taken the raw ingredient and you've done something to it. If you then season it with oil and rub cumin on it, then you've manipulated it again. And then if you put it in the oven and roast it for 35 minutes, 
manipulation. And you puree that with some tapioca starch, and you spread it thin, and you dehydrate it. That's more manipulation. And then if you fry it and make it crispy, and you season it with a powder that you made from the tops of the carrot, another manipulation step, right? So it is your job as a chef to decide when is it done. It is no different than the painter and the canvas. When the painting, when is the painting done, right? Should I go through and add shading to all the buildings that I just painted? I mean, I could, but does that make it a better painting? You know, that's the subjective part. And I think that's where this guy's food exists, this guy on Instagram that I'm covering. Does it add value, right? To the dude that hates his job making clam chowder every day of his life and he's just dying for some creativity in his life that's food-related, following this guy probably brings an immense amount of joy to his life. And who's to say that that's bad, right? I hear it all the time in the comment episodes of my This Place Called episodes on uh, YouTube on the higher end of restaurants. I'm pretty transparent with the cost of all my meals, and when it's over a certain dollar amount, so many people love to come through in the woodwork and give me comments like, you paid that much and got tiny dishes, and you know, like you could have gone to McDonald's and gotten a month's worth of food for that much, right? And to that I say, that's not the point, Right? Like you could go buy construction paper from the office supply store and scotch tape it to your wall, and it's technically wall art. But you could also have your three year old bang on a pot with a wooden spoon, and it's te- technically music. Or you could go see Dave Matthews in concert, right? Or pick any band. I don't know why I said Dave Matthews. But there's different experiences. Because, and because food is this practical thing that we all need to survive, I think it's very easy to paint these negative pictures when in reality, this guy on Instagram could have been a sculptor or a painter, and he de- but he decided to make creative things with food. And if he's not hurting anyone, mazel tov. He can do whatever he wants. I will say, though, I did the math. The dude has 36 times more followers than I do on Instagram, but we get the same amount of engagement on all of our posts. So I think that's a little crazy. But anyways, that's another conversation. On that point, though, I wanted to do a, while I'm on the the, the riff of talking to you folks about things that um, I've made or my opinion on things, I wanted to do a public follow-up on my cook versus chef video I posted because I got a lot of comments on that video, and I expected that. I wanted that. Um, I learned a ton from having conversations with you folks. Uh, some dude even made a video response, and it was insanely awesome, uh, even though he fundamentally disagreed with me. And I wanted that. I wanted to hear from you. Uh, It's how I learn now, right? Because I'm not in a specific restaurant from day to day. I'm not traveling as much as I was before. And some people were very unapologetically against me in the video. Some of you folks sent me messages saying, thank you. I needed this mindset change for myself. Some people uh, saying where I live, everybody calls himself a chef. Some people saying, if you graduate from culinary school, you're a chef in their mind. Um, some people using that classic ideology of, nope, you're not a chef until you, you're running the kitchen. And I wanted to address two things that I failed to acknowledge in the video. And somebody brought this up in a comment. In a comment, They said, from my definition, someone preparing burgers at McDonald's is technically a chef. Because I said, if you get paid in a professional transaction to prepare food, you are a chef. And that made me kind of think a little bit. I was like, yeah, I guess technically this employee at McDonald's makes food professionally and McDonald's is a restaurant but there isn't a lot of skill involved and McDonald's is so systemized that there's not really any creativity involved in that job which is major reason why myself and so many other people enter this industry but that's also to me the mark of a good restaurant right like systems and consistency so I was a little puzzled with that comment but I arrived at my conclusion and it was very much so of like this video this cook versus chefs video was a video for my previous self I wish that I could have seen that video when I was in my younger years in the industry it would have saved me a lot of self-doubt and a lot of negative talk that I think could have like I think it partially hindered my process uh, or my progress, I guess. And it was a video to address people with, you know, that imposter syndrome. If you have desires to work at restaurants operating at a higher caliber, I think you're better off calling yourself a chef. Um, And that person isn't typically the McDonald's employee. But hey, everybody's got to kind of start somewhere, you know. And secondly, in response to the guy who made a video response, part of his argument was about leadership and hierarchy. That was one of his, his biggest reasons why he disagreed with me. He said something like, if everyone's a chef, how in the world can there be any order, right? Like things will descend into chaos and my boss would never call me a chef, right? One, 
I never suggested that we dissolve the brigade system. I never, ever said that. And if we give unlimited authority to anyone that calls himself a chef, it's of course it's going to be chaos, right? But I do say it later in the video that you start with chef and then you modify your title based on the structure of wherever you work. So I hate to bash your argument, um, but it wasn't my intention with the video and I absolutely failed to communicate that. So that's definitely on me. I wanted to make it clear here. But again, yes, I made that video to kind of be clickbaity. Uh, and, but it, I, I didn't like bait and switch anybody. It was genuinely my thoughts on a topic that I'm very opinionated about. And I don't believe that creating an echo chamber for your thoughts leads to anywhere positive. Uh, there's this big controversy on like Alex Jones and the reason that he... Uh, um, is so controversial sometimes is because he doesn't sit across from anyone. He kind of just spits his thoughts out onto the internet and then doesn't give any kind of response to anyone else. I don't want this show to be that. This show has never been that. Uh, I want it to be a scenario where I say something and there's a very, very easy way to get in contact with me if you disagree in any capacity and then I will follow up if I, you know, if, if I think that there's value in me following up, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, you you folks also know I love getting involved in the comments. So if you did comment, I loved hearing your different sides and different takes on, on, on the story. It's how I form my own opinions. I, I, I hear you folks saying certain things and how you're thinking. Um, and it's essentially scaling that on a global level. And I love it. And I love that the internet does that. And I want to continue to learn with you. I'm very excited for that. Uh, and listening to you folks is how I come up with new ideas for videos these days. Uh, so I want to continue to grow this community here in our little corner of the internet. I just wanted that to be said because it was one of my more controversial topics. Last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a DM, and with your permission, I like to answer it in a way that might help the greater good, and I actually have two from this week. Uh, you folks that have answered these, uh, asked these questions have been very, very patient, so thank you. Space Irvine, uh, named Cora, says, um, I have a lasting issue that I want to correct. If you have a video for this, feel free to direct me. I am not organized. I feel like I can never be ready for my station for service. I'm not a pastry lead, but I work very different than my superior. How can I prepare my station to work effectively and keep composed? Forgive me if that's broad. So you need to, there's, there's, there's two things here that I would advise you to do first. One is to ask those very impertinent questions to your superior on how don't ask this very broad question of, you know, how can I work faster? How can I work more organized? Because there's not going to be a very distinct answer there. What you can say is, you know, hey, I really want to improve my speed on the black sesame tweels. Can you get with me on this and we can do one tray together so I can see how you do it and then I can practice in the way that you do it. Right. So going very, very micro tactical on certain prep projects of your thing and notice how that person kind of if that person is faster than you in a capacity that you're looking up to them, you can kind of notice where do they put their spatula? Like, where is the twill batter? How do they lay out their sill pats? Uh, do they stack their trays in a certain way? When do they turn the oven on? How do they set their timer? Like, all these little tiny details are going to be little maneuvers that are going to kind of make you faster. Right. And then in a bigger picture, when I think about uh, working on a station, sometimes you need to experience and I, I, I need I do need to make a video on this because it is so important. You need to experience what it feels like to go past where that limit is, because, you know, if you're clocking out at 60 miles an hour. Right. And chef wants you to go 80 miles an hour. The only way you're going to get to 80 is not getting better at going 60 miles an hour and going 61, 62, 63. You need to feel what it feels like to go 90 miles an hour, and then you can tone it back to 80. And then 80 is going to feel like kind of a walk in the park, and then you're going to look back at where you were six months ago, and you're like, I was only going 60 miles an hour. Does that make sense? I hate to use like speed uh, as a metric because it's not always the same, but I also highly recommend you listen to my interview I did with Amit Levy where I talk about systems, 
Um, but I'm trying to get a little more, more tactical with this on your question. How can I prepare my station to work effectively and keep composed? Um, I like that you phrase that in two ways, right? So it's like your station, your physical environment is definitely one thing. Um, obviously things like trying to make sure you're cleaning as you go, uh, take a look around your station and use the tips from my, uh, station video where it's like, do I need this? Do I need this? Do I need this? Constantly ask yourself that question and put things away that you don't need because that physical space will, uh, inherently affect your mental space on, you know, like, how does this, how do I feel when I'm at work? And do I feel flustered? Do I feel overwhelmed when I'm in this environment? Um, because that's definitely a huge part of the equation that never gets talked about. And especially some of my videos that are uh, trying to be very tactical uh, and give you these tips to make you incrementally faster. But, you know, it, I can give you all the tips in the world, but if you're flustered and literally scared out of your mind, that you're going to go down on your station, none of these tips will help. So you have to do something to kind of like get out of that box. And whether it's mentorship or better training from the people that you're working with, uh, you need to find a way to make that happen. Um, so I hope that semi-answered your question. I know a lot of it was kind of like you just need to work harder. Um, but, you know, at a certain level, if you find yourself getting super, super crazy flustered, you just need to take a second and be like, deep breath, you know, like it's okay. Like you need to push through it and it needs to be done in a way that's not going to stress you out because if you're stressed out, the people around you are going to stress out and the food's going to suffer. And that means the guest isn't going to be as happy and you're not going to be happy at work. So all of that is counterproductive, right? So you need to find a way to fix your mental state. There are tons of ways to do that, whether it's meditation or, you know, asking like, again, asking for that proper training so that you uh, facilitate that a little bit more. Or, you know, maybe you need to say, hey, I don't think I can do this many dishes on my station. Uh, I need help on this dish. Or, you know, when certain things happen, I need to be able to know that I have someone to count on. There's tons of ways to do that. Um, if I didn't answer your question, I would really like a, another DM so that we can kind of dive deeper into this, but that's more or less kind of where I'm at. Jacob, Jacob Rafferty, I hope I'm saying that right, is question number two in direct answer. I promised I would answer this on the podcast, so I'm doing it. He says, hey, Justin, hope it's not too late at night to message you. I'm wondering what your approach is to refining rep recipes on my dinners. How do I offset the cost of trial and error in a personal setting, and how often do I serve a dish if I feel it is incomplete? which is a very, very interesting question. I'm glad you asked it. Def I'm definitely going to go on a rant about this. Um, the testing process doesn't often happen with a lot of my dishes. And it kind of seems counterintuitive to say because a lot of times people paid a lot of money to come to the dinners that I'm doing. And if I told a lot of, like if I told some people that it was the first time that I served that dish, a lot of people will get super excited but then it goes the other way sometimes, or it's like, if the dish doesn't go well, then I have to tell people this is the first time I've served this dish, and then it turns into an apology situation. More often than not, it is like a 50 to 1 time when that happens, and that only comes from the 10,000 hours from Malcolm Gladwell. It's like doing flavor combinations over and over and over and over again and working at restaurants where the menu changes every day and working on restaurants where you have six dishes on your menu and then you have an entire out of place menu that has to be different. Um, it's just repetition. There was, uh, when I first moved to Seattle, I would write a tasting menu every week, even if I wasn't going to serve it just to kind of like get inspiration of, uh, like what flavors work together. The only time that I have had dishes go south or dinners go south is when there's either equipment failure or the conditions are not prime for the dish that I want to serve, aka I had a component on a dish at the farm dinner I did a couple weeks ago where I really needed it to be like a hard candy shell and we were outside so the humidity just turned it into like chewy sugar and that just it is what it is and we still served it and people still enjoyed it it just wasn't the effect that i was 100 percent going for and with i think i construct menus now where i have you know 70 percent of it i know is going to be rock solid and then i have that 30 percent that 20 to 30 percent that is kind of like pushing the boundaries a little bit and it's like well this is kind of technique driven or this could go south and for for those 20 percent of things i have a backup plan 
I have a contingency of something to make sure that if it goes wrong, I have something to back it up with. And that definitely helps with my bandwidth way more than if 100% of the menu had to have a backup plan. Does that make sense? So it's like I have these things that I've done a million times. I know they're going to work. I have recipes for them. Um, They're very stable. They're not reliant on temperature or texture or consistency or and when I say consistency, I mean like um, I tell that story of that pop-up we did where we wanted to do an ice cream and there was no freezer, right? So that's why I talk about consistency where it's like we wanted it to be frozen, uh, but we couldn't, it was too soft, right? So um, how I approach her finding recipes, the, the cool thing about um, especially the summertime for me when I was doing those weekly farmer's market dinners is that those would essentially serve as testing grounds for the larger events. So we would do like between eight and it was like between six and eight people at these farmer's market dinners and we would write the menu day of, which again did two things. It gave me the work on your feet Uh, ability to kind of like write menus on the spot and then it also gave me the ability to like well this ingredient is new and how do I make it different than last week Um, which created a lot of really really nice dishes and techniques that we tried and flavor combinations that worked which then we could get immediate feedback on I think that's also really important Um, I feel like sometimes uh, doing trial and error testing in in kitchens and test kitchen environment can be a little discouraging because you don't get feedback from the guest. So one of two things happens. You're either way too hard on yourself or you don't get a real enough feedback from a focus group that really actually matters, right? You think it's really delicious, but the guest, it either might go way over their head or it might be too simple for them. Um, So I think that's really, really interesting. And those are the only times when I've had things go well and when I have things not go well. So I hope that answers your question. That was a double dose of direct answer. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you wish there was a way to not only get your questions answered but have like a a back and forth dialogue with me, I do offer one-on-one coaching sessions and there are two ways to schedule one. If you're getting ready to make your next move, you got to update your resume. You got to practice answering interview questions. You can check out justincona.com slash coaching. And as a thank you for listening this far into the show, use code end of the show, all one word to get a sweet, sweet discount on your first booking. There is one spot left on the mentor tier on Patreon. Normally I would pitch the crap out of that, but there's only one spot left it's 50 bucks a month and you get a 30 minute coaching call every single month with me. That's more of a relationship basis. If you're also interested in supporting the show, you can go through that link, justincona.patreon.com uh, slash justincona, and you can support this show for just $1 a month if you enjoyed this episode. So in our non-industry story of the week, we're going to see if my phone lasts uh, long enough. I got a new iPhone and I'm going to open it live on the the show while I talk about what I'm going to talk about. Um, I upgraded to the X, the 10S. Why do I keep saying XS? Because I have to type it that way. I got the 256 gigabyte model in space gray for all of you that have been following on Twitter. You know that I've been itching to get a smaller phone. The practical person in me hated the fact that I uh, had an iPhone 8 Plus with just a little tiny, I had a, I have a leather case on it and then it was too big and I kind of worried about dropping it so I had to have a pop socket on it. Uh, anyways, I got this because I want to be able to actually watch my 4K content in 4K and I think that's very, very interesting that the XR, the 10R doesn't have a nice enough display. So I'm very excited for this. I'm going to open this up right after I get done with this and get it all set up. If you enjoy that kind of content, I am almost finished with scripting my how I make content video that I'm working on. So that's going to be a super huge deep dive behind the scenes video on all the gear that I use to shoot video right now. I made a ton of really exciting upgrades lately and I really want to share them. So stay tuned for that. Drop a comment if you have questions about how I shoot video or any uh, specifics that you want me to cover in that Uh, regard. So that'll do it for this week's show, episode 80. As per usual, if you have stories that you want me to cover next week, please shoot them to me on Twitter, hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. I always love getting suggestions from you folks. 
Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me <laughs>